Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. Today, we are very pleased and honored to have with us Dr. Ari Bergman. Dr. Bergman earned his master's and PhD from Columbia University with a doctoral thesis titled Halevi Halivni and the Oral Formation of the Babylonian Talmud. Dr. Bergman has lectured in numerous prestigious institutions, including the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, Yeshiva University, and others. He was also a visiting researcher at the Harvard Law School. Dr. Bergen is, Bergman is a certified accountant and serves as the CEO and founder of Penso Advisors, a risk management advisory company for large hedge funds, pensions, and endowments. And today, Dr. Bergman will be discussing an absolutely fascinating and important topic based on his thesis and much more, the formation of the Talmud. Dr. Bergman, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it very much. It's my great pleasure to be here and I hope people enjoy it. Just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the formation of the Talmud. Okay, it's a story. I went to many yeshivot and I learned in yeshivot in Ponovich for a while in Hebron. And then I got to work. And um, back in the year 2000, after being married and my children grown up, I decided to go back to school. And Columbia University at that time was offering a uh, degree called a liberal studies master's in Jewish studies that you could biblically design a, a curriculum that would fit for somebody working. And I went there specifically to study and to learn from Yosef uh, Chaimir Roshalmi which was the professor, Salabiram professor of Jewish history. And the idea was to learn about Jewish history. So I registered and was accepted, but that semester he wasn't there. He was on a sabbatical and I was looking for a course and I saw there was a critical formation of Talmudic text given by somebody called Professor David Weissalivni and what I've heard before about him. So the more I researched, I realized that he was a, an unbelievable scholar and uh, I thought it was an interesting idea to go there. So I joined his class just by default, by chance. And it was lovely the first sight. I saw somebody who actually knew the Talmud in a fantastic way. And he had devoted most of his life to determine about the structure of the Talmud and the formation of the Talmud. And that's how I became very interested in that. And to compare his theories to the other existing theories and also to the prevalent traditional ideas that came out to the Orthodox community in Ishibot and contrast and comparing them. And uh, I realized that the formation of the Talmud is a very important topic and a topic that was not discussed in me. After learning so many years, I did not know. And that's how I got interested. And that became a passion and a love for the past basically 22 years. Just very briefly before we get to the details, what exactly is the issue surrounding what is called the formation of the Talmud. See, the Talmud is a fantastic work, right? Two point, uh, more than 2,000 folios. And it's a work that's been studied for so many years by so many people. And the question is how it came about, right? It was originally very much looks like an oral work that was written, and it's a collective work. And more interesting than it, the vast majority is anonymous. 
So the question is how the, the, the book came to be. And by understanding that, then you could understand how to learn it. So in other words, it's a book. Every book has an author and has a goal and has a plan. Study here, who is the author? Who are the people? What is the structure? How did it become what it is? And it's important to know that it's not just history because the formation of the Talmud, and I learned that through my years, it's foundational to be able to understand the work itself. You can't work, you can't understand what it says, the work, unless you understand what kind of work the Talmud is. You cannot understand what work the Talmud is unless you understand how it came to be. That's why the formation of the Talmud is that important. How this work came to be. Who are the authors? What was the agenda? What's the structure? Um, going back um, to some of the earlier sources, um, what exactly is the Seder Tanaim Va'amoraim? What is that? Okay, so, and I developed this idea, by the way, Robert Brody in his book on the Gionim and myself in my own book. We develop the work because Jewish history as much as we focus on Jewish memory, right? Memory is very important. Zachor, we remember. We have Pesach that remembered the exodus of Egypt. We have Purim. And all the holidays are forms of memory, of Jewish collective memory. We have very little work done on history. History was never viewed as something important. Yosef Chaim Roshalmi, his seminal work called Zachor, discusses it. And Therefore, we don't know the Talmud. Imagine, we have been learning the Talmud for over 2,000 years, and almost 2,000 years, right? 1,500 years. And we don't have any history written how it came about to be. And it's appalling, right? But that's it, because we didn't have Jewish history. So the earliest work that we know, they discuss is about the Talmud, but basically as a chain of transmission, right? Is Seder Tanaim Vamoraim, which is a Geonic work. It's unclear how it came to be, and probably our it is a very confused work, and it's difficult to understand. And most scholarly opinions, including myself and Robert Brody, it's probably the version that we have is a compilation of several versions put together. So it's not even one work, but it is a chain of transmission that talks about the Talmud and how the transmission of the Talmud came to be. But it's not a historical work. It doesn't tell you about the process. And because it's a composite or some kind of a mosaic of different works, it's actually very confusing. So it doesn't add much. But this is the first Geonic work, which is basically somewhere around the 10th century that talks about the Talmud, Talmud and the first kernel of ideas of how it came to be made as a work that we see today. And, and what, does it, what does it say? What does that kernel tell us initially? It's unclear. I think that it leaves you more questions than answers. It does talk about the role of perhaps the different Amoraim that had a, the Amoraim or the sages of the Talmud, that they have probably a more prominent role, like a Bayer Rabba. It uh, does say about that. It talks about a section or a group of rabbis that came after the Talmud called the Savoraim. And it says that this group existed. So between the Geonim and the Amoraim, which is the Talmud, the sages of the Talmud, it creates this new category of rabbis that basically breached them, called the Samaraim. That is 
an introduction, not an idea. This was brought by Sadat Adin and stuff like that. But very then, clear. It doesn't tell you a story. Only tells you bits and pieces and kernels of ideas. Very hard to use and to come up with anything real of substance. And then what does the um, epistle of, of Shuvera Gaon add to the work of the Seder Tanayim Amorai? Now, the question, what's the relationship? You probably, uh, the most scholarly opinion is it probably relied on or came to correct the misunderstandings that came out of Sadatan of Abraham. He comes to answer a uh, request by the Chachmei Kirwan, the people of Kirwan, who are asking about the Talmud. Who are the Talmud? Who are the Amorayim? how it come about, what the chain of transmission is. And they ask the basic, simple, historical questions about the Talmud. And he comes to answer. The pistol of Assyria Ragon is the first comprehensive idea to answer and to structure of the different people, how the process came about, who were the Savoraim, how did the Yeshivot of Gionim came about, right? Because the Yeshivot of Gionim, Surabopedita, were big Yeshivot, and people were interested to know how did it come about? Who founded them? When did it happen? So that is uh, the Epistle of Shergon. Epistle of Shergon is a train of transmission, but does discuss about the Talmud and has a lot of valuable information. But like any work that was done by the Gionim requires interpretation and is open for interpretation, right? But it is a comprehensive analysis or understanding and the traditions by Rav Shergon which was the name of the uh, 10th and 11th century, to try to understand how the Talmud came about. And then moving, moving down in history a, a bit, I guess this would be a, a couple hundred years uh, afterwards, um, Maimonides, the Rambam, how, what does he contribute? How did he classify Jewish law, and how does that help us understanding the chain of tradition and perhaps the formation of the Talmud? See, Maimonides does describe in the beginning of the Yad, in the beginning of Mishnah Torah, the train of transmission. It does create that same style of the chain of transmission without much of a description of the process of formation, just how did it come about. But what the Maimonides does say, and I think is questions of authority, of validity, pedigree. And that's very important, right? Because Shergon talks about how the process comes about. The Rambam comes to say, okay, what's the halachic validity? Meaning, what's the role of the rabbis? And what he goes in Mishneh Torah, he goes into the trans, train of transmission, says there was an unbroken chain of transmission. And Ravashu came up with this work called the Talmud, or perhaps a proto-Talmud. The Moraic rulings that were compiled by Ravashi, they were accepted by the whole Jewish community. There was a communal acceptance, and therefore they become legally binding, and they become canonical. So that's a levels of authority. Debatable if the Rambam of Maimonides is discussing about the entire Talmud, or perhaps just the Emoraic rulings of the Talmud. That we'll talk about in a second. But that's very important. And the Rambam also comes, the Maimonides comes to explain what is the authority of the rabbis. And he describes the oral Torah in five categories. Two categories are transmitted from Sinai. Those are the what's called interpretations, the translations called the tafsir, which is basically how do you translate words, right? We have uh, the Torah talks about pre-etz hadar on Sukkot. 
And the rabbis say Priyat Hadar is in a trog. How do you know that? Right? So this is the tradition of how to interpret the Torah. There's a second set of traditions, which is called Al-Khalim Sinai, those are teachings, those are rulings, black tefillin, all this stuff, and this is from Sinai. But then the Ramam comes and creates a third category. All of the drashot, which is the exegesis of the rabbis, the rabbis use different rules of interpretation to create new law, to derive new law. He says this is called the very supreme. It's creative. The Torah gave the rabbis authority to use interpretation tools to be able to take the Torah and to unhide or uncover secret meanings to create Allah. They have, according to most people, a authority of the writer, meaning they are as if the Torah prescribes them. Those are not rabbinical edicts, but they are creative things that they were able to extract using the tools of interpretation, Kodiu Gimel Midot mainly. These are the principles of interpretation? The principles of interpretation, yes. So the principles and, and were the, given and, Sinai. And these, and these were given at, at Sinai, according to the Rambam? The principles, yet not the application. Okay. Right, they're giving the tools. And Maimardis almost says that clearly, he says that clearly in the introduction to the Mishnah, and he says this also in the Mishnah Torah, right? In the Yad, in Yilchot Mamrim, he does say that. He says that this, and that's why these ideas are, could be revoked by later courts. So the Sanhedrin could later revoke them, right? So these are ideas that evolved over time. And then they are the rabbinic edicts, could be Takanot and Zerot. Either the word Zerot, which were ways of distancing the people from sin to create some kind of offense, some kind of a promulgations, or takanot, takanot are decrees, meaning to make life better, to make things better, dark shalom, etc. et cetera. So that's how the Rambam goes. So the Rambam comes to canonize and categorize, because he was really interested in distilling the Talmud into a book of Allah. And therefore, he had to talk about levels of authority, levels of pedigree which is very different. So he's interested in the history, the formation of the Talmud, just to assign legal authority and credence to the different levels, not as a historical endeavor. So the history becomes a derivative. That's why it's so important to set the history of the Talmud, because the history of the Talmud becomes the tools of how legal authority was vested in the Talmud and how to understand the Talmud. So the history of the Talmud, the formation is extremely important to know is the entire Talmud, does the entire Talmud have equal legal validity or perhaps portions of it have more legal validity than others? What happens if there are contradictions? Was there an editing dust? Meaning, can you assume the Talmud is entirely consistent? Or perhaps not. Perhaps it has different things which are irreconcilable. So for legal status, later authorities need to make a decision. Stuff like that. So the history of the Talmud is important to understand not only how to learn it, but to assign authority to the Talmud, halachic, because the Talmud becomes a canonical work that defined rabbinical Judaism for the past 1500 years. Um, who was Yitzhak Isaac Halevi? So let's talk a little bit about it. I told you, Jewish history was never a topic, right? Jewish history was something that was relegated. Even if Shiragon is not a history book. It is a chain of transmission, right? It is a chain of transmission. It is, at best, some kind of a chronology of events. It's a chronology. Now, chronology 
today scholars talk about it. Can you really construct? But there's no history. There's no process of formation. It doesn't. It's a chronology. Chronology, chain of transmission, more of a chronology than anything else. In the 19th century in Europe came the revival of history, right? Leopold Renke brings history and historiography into the universities. People looking to the scribes and look into their history. And that was a movement that came to the Jewish world. And that was the big beginning of Wissenschaftes Unitas, right? We know that there were scholars involved in academia to work for the history of the Jewish history. But like every history, it was supposed to be a very unbiased history. It was supposed to be history as it was. But as we know, that that's almost impossible. It became a tool of ideology. And a lot of the ideology that came is an ideology of reform. That's how a lot of the people were involved into the reformation of the religion, not only as a history to see, okay, how Jewish history came about, but use Jewish history as a platform for change, saying, okay, Jewish law always involved in change. Let's do a change and reform. And the Orthodox were basically, because of that, withdrew even closer away from history. Like Rabbi Shimshon Lefar Hirsch, who say, okay, Jewish life is beyond history, is super historical. It's almost cosmic. There's no rules of history, so he can't even sign. But that was something that was an unattainable situation. As the 19th century evolved, the many Jewish works of history of people who understood the Talmud had to started to penetrate to the Ishibot. Isaac Hirsch's right? Dor, Dor Vedorshav made a huge impact. Gretz's history of the Jews, especially Newton, made a huge impact. So there were works out there of history who did not follow or did not, they would have perhaps an agenda or perhaps did not follow the Orthodox agenda. And therefore there was a huge problem. There was a huge desire to create history and Jewish history with a version of Orthodox orthodoxy to it, the orthodox beliefs, which were the traditional beliefs without assuming a form. Yitzchak Kalevi was an interesting rabbi, was a big Chacham, was a big scholar, wrote uh, what learned by the biggest issue got, he learned in um, Zoology, he was close to Abraham Brisker, and he was a businessman, his business went bad, and he decided to devote his life to two things. He became, he decided, okay, he's going, he was a huge scholar. He was going to, as a self-didact, he never went to university, but he's going to write Jewish history in, with a version, he said, the unbiased version, without any, quote-unquote, agenda. But the truth, he had an agenda, apologetic agenda, but the orthodoxy. He's going to do the orthodox version, which is called, came to be like, called Chochmat Israel is the Jewish traditional uh, application of historiography, Jewish history. And he wrote a very important book, and uh, it's called Dorot Shonim. And he, he started basically with the history of the Talmud, how the Talmud came about. And he has a very, very clear agenda that the Talmud was, there was no never change, was just a preservation of traditions which is basically the traditional view that was as possible at the time. And he also used this as a platform for his political views, right? He decided that orthodoxy had also to form a political movement, a social political movement that would unite everybody. And he is the, the architect and the visionary and the founder of Agudat Israel. And he used the Talmud as the same thing. So he used Jewish history as part of his apologetic agenda and his political agenda. So he was a very interesting guy, very interesting guy in the aspect that he was very smart, 
a huge Tanchacham, and he was very, he was able to merge politics, apologetics, and Jewish history altogether with Talmudic erudition. And he creates and he forms the image, the collective image that ran the Orthodox community for many, many years. And this is a multi-volume book called Dorot and Shani. And, and so what, what exactly, his thesis specifically on the formation of the Talmud, Corpus okay. from Sinai that just went down the ages, and then at some point it was written down, compiled, and put together? Yes, let me tell you, he has a process of formation which is very clearly defined. His idea was the following, that the, first of all, he is the one who believes that everything is from Sinai. He is, he is very focused on the idea, and he actually reinterprets Maimonides to say that there is no creativity whatsoever. The rabbis are preservers of tradition, and they are adjudication. They apply traditional law. They don't create law. Very important for him. And the truth is because he's going in the time that people thought that there is reform, law evolved all the time, and that was the platform of the conservative, early, the early kernel of the conservative movement, which was the Franco-positive historical school and the reform school, so, assuming that there was always constant change. So his view is there was no change. Everything is from Sinai. He takes it in literal sense. Kol talmid Every single thing that anybody says was already said in Sinai. There's nothing new. So the rabbis were preservers of tradition, and they went ahead and they were interpreters of tradition. They were trying to interpret the laws that were given and application, adjudication, application of that law. That's it. That's what they did. So the rabbis were trying to preserve, maintain, and this is how the Talmud evolved, right? So the Talmud, he goes to describe the entire work of the Moraim, and his basically structure is like this. The Moraim come to Babel, to Babylonia in the beginning of the third century, Rabbi Shmuel, they always, in his view, even the Ishvot were all the same. Surah Bubedita that we see in the Talmud the Gionim, he projects it back in some ways like the Shergon does, that the Ishvot always existed. But he says, he concedes that in the beginning, there were rabbis maintaining their own traditions, right? Because every school had their own traditions, and the disciples maintained their own traditions. So different schools in Babylonia keeping different parts of the tradition, which they received from their own masters and their own chains. At the fourth century, right, Abai and Rava are the ones who create, decide to say, you know something, we should collect all these traditions and maintain it in the collective form. And that was an amazing idea that the, the traditions are going to be now not particular to different schools, but a general collection and bring everybody into conversation. This was, and it's amazing because the Talmud is unique on that, right? The Talmud doesn't have an author. The Talmud is a conversation between dead rabbis who are in a lively conversation and each one has to justify. And even though they are not talking because they're dead, we are in the anonymous voice imputing words into their mouth. He says, and the truth is, it is a very valid, valid theory. And in my book, I show you how this today, using technology and using search engines and using statistical work, he was right. Abai and Rava decide to change. There was a big pivot that instead of maintaining traditions individually by individual schools, it was maintained collectively as a corporate work by the academies. And they were memorized by somebody called Tanaim. The Tanaim were the memorizers of the academy because it was oral. They didn't have any written work. And they were Tanaim. They were human tape recorders who memorized the work. 
and they collect all the traditions. Abayi and Rava, they were in different places, but they worked in coordination to collect all the stuff together and to maintain from now on. So now the tradition, the preservation is the same, nothing changed. But instead of preserving each one individually, and they would just check in balances once a year, just study together. So in other words, I was supposed to be responsible, not for my master's traditions, but for every other master's traditions, bring into conversation to see what was right and what was wrong. And that work evolved up to the fifth century when Ravashi, which was very powerful, he does a final editing on that. He's doing the, he does an editing. He does a conclusion. He does editing. He does the, so by Ravashi do the compiling. He does the editing, the final editing. And he has a yeshiva. He has a special council. And his idea is called the Beit Avad, that he made some kind of a global conclave of rabbis who decided to clean up the Talmud edit the Talmud, and finalize. And in his view, the Talmud gets finalized, terminated, finished in the beginning of the 5th century. And we can't change anymore. That's it. In the year 475, it's done. The end of the 5th century, the Talmud is finished. And the word is Savoraim, because he has to address this new category of rabbis who did some kind of minor work, minor editing work, minor additions, divisions, and finally writing. So the, the Savraim for the next, up to the year 589, from 475 to the year 589, give or take, they go ahead and they do minor editing, minor editions, organizing into chapters, into different sugyot, and they committed to writing. And the 589 is the beginning of the Golden Era, and that's it. The Talmud is done, it's finished. So his view of the Talmud worked as a planned process done by people, very much into the Orthodox view. Right, it's all maintenance of traditions, right? It's nothing new, but the maintenance traditions goes from individual schools to a process of collective work, to a process of editing, canonizing, turning to a book, and the finalization and the full canonization and the crystallization of the Talmud by the time of Ravashi with minor editing and writing at the year 589. Very clean structure. But the historical record shows that that's like history, right? History is much more messy, is a much more organic, is a much more, I would say, non-planned organic work. And he doesn't accept that. He wants to make sure because for him it's very, very important to see that there's no change. And it was, this decision was made deliberately by a con Congress of rabbis. They got all the top rabbis and they decided very similar to his political body, right? He says that all Jewish law and all Jewish approaches has to be done by a committed political body organizing all the rabbis together, the Aguda. So he thought there was a process of the Aguda at that time. Ah, fascinating. And, and who was your teacher, um, David Weiss Halivni? So David Weiss Halivni actually took the opposite view, right? He thinks he always respected and he was the one who encouraged me to write on the because when he went to school, David Weiss was in High Berlin under Rabbi Hutner, and he decided to go into academia. And uh, Rabbi Hutner said, If you go into academia, you're going to do academic work in the Talmud, why don't you devote trying to understand the Jewish academics, the Orthodox academics, the Orthodox Wissenschaft, Chumat Israel, the And Halivin never did that, so I was the one in charge of doing it. But Halevi took the opposite. So he respected Halevi. He said Halevi is a big Talmudist, but Halevi had an agenda, a political agenda. And Halevi takes the extreme opposite. The Talmud was not pre planned. 
the Talmud was never organized by Ravashi and Abai and etc. So the, his view is the Talmud were traditions learned in Babylonia. But when the Babylonian Amorama move, uh, movement, right, I'll say, dwindled just because there were persecutions, there were plagues, etc., they realized that this was going to be lost. So there were people after the Amoraim, all post-Amoraic period, from the year 540, give or take, called the Stabaim. The Stabaim are the unsung, unknown heroes of the Talmud. They go ahead and they look at the traditions and they try to reconstruct the debate, to maintain, to preserve. It's like the Supreme Court, right? Supreme Court or the Constitution. The Constitution, if the Constitution, they don't have the debate to be able to see how they came about. So the Talmud was when they realized that this great movement that was in Babylonia is going to be forgotten at the time, these Stamaim came to go ahead and to reconstruct, number one, the statement of the Amoraim, and to reconstruct or guess, like almost guesswork, the debates, the reconstruction. The Talmud is a reconstructive work done post-Amoraic from the year, Halimi has evolved the time, so it was all post, right? It's always post, is a reconstruction work done by the Stamaim, this new category of people. And this went, and he argues with the Shriragon with all the traditional accounts. He actually goes not only against Halibdi, because I just told you, there was Sedat Ibrahim and was Shriragon that says a chronology. And he's not only going against the process, he's going against the chronology. He says, no, the Talmud was never like this. The Talmud is a reconstructed one, reconstructed by, by the Stamaim from the year 540, give or take to the year, the end of the 8th century, beginning of the 9th century. And this is a constructed work, and that's it. And that has an implication. So he writes his theory throughout his theory evolved. It's published in English, right, the formation of Talmud, and was translated by Jeff Rubinstein from NYU. And he summarized as his introduction to Masechat Sanhedrin that was published as a book in itself, showing the process. But what's interesting about Halivni is he takes that to explain the Talmud. And he writes a commentary, a running commentary on the Talmud, starting all the Isar from Nashim, but basically all the Talmud goes all the way to Kochim, to the end of it. He only got to Zvachim Nachot, and then he got sick and he passed away, so he didn't. But he did a commentary. But he takes truly 180 degrees from Halevi. Not a process at all. Halevi says all the process is very organized, very methodic, and in the year 475, give or take, Halevi says, no, 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 the process starts in the year 540. And it's all looking backwards and reconstructed. And that's why it's a very messy product. And that's why he calls his book called Mekorot Mesorot, Sources and Traditions, to see how many things are difficult in the Talmud because the Stamain did not know how to reconstruct it, and he found a way how to do it. That's basically the idea. And what was Halibni's position on two issues? Number one, the oral law of Sinai was something given regarding the oral law of Sinai. And how did he, Moses' theory on the Mishnah and Rabbi Huda Hanasi and the redacting and putting the Mishnah together? On that, he's he is actually very conservative. He does think that uh, the uh, the laws given at Sinai, but again, very much my Maimonidean, right? They were given the laws and the tools, but they had the ability to create and innovate. But that's that's but that's not his. That's my Maimonides. The only one that took an opposite view 
on Maimonides, who was Halevi because of the issues, right? So he does. He does say that the Mishnah's redaction was organized and it was pre-planned and it was an orderly process because the Buddha and the Sea did do that. He did convene a court called Minyar de Rebbe and he did collect the traditions. He did compile and he did actually did an anthology. He did it. He conceived that. So Halevi agrees to the traditional way on the Mishnah. Now, several things he does, and he just says, he goes to explain who created Mishnah. Mishnah also is part of the innovation, right? And he goes, and but that's actually very consistent with Jewish tradition. His view is that in the beginning, or Midrashim, right, were exegesis, exegesis, like interpretations of the rabbis connected to scripture, and then it translated into pure oral logic, the Mishnah. But then the compilation of the Mishnah was an anthology done by Rabbi. Rabbi was very powerful, and he did convene, and it was organized. He says the mistake of Halevi and many others was to assume an analogy that the same process took place in the Talmud, right? Was a, and he says that's not true. In the Mishnah, it's true, not in the Talmud. He wants to create this break. Even though the Talmud always puts together Ravashi and Rabbi Udanasi, it appears to me that they had the same process, the same authority, the same role. He says, no, that's not it. And many scholars have said that. I mean, they're compared for different things. They did monumental works. They were very important. They did a revolution in their own times. But their contribution, their process was very different. And so we have Alevi, we have Alivni, and now integrating those two diverse theories in the model that you develop, how does that work? So uh, the model to develop is because I come from a traditional way, right? So I do believe, I think it's extremely important to maintain Rapshiragon and et cetera, and the rules. And you have to just reinterpret. And I think that Halivni Open, I do go with, with, first of all, the contributions. My book is basically an analysis. What are the contributions of Halivni that we should keep? that there is validity. And my view is the role of Abai Varava, that he says that they did put the traditions together, I think is extremely important and it's extremely valid. But the Talmud was oral and we do not have any recordings of real written works until the, eighth, until the, eighth, the end of the 18th century, the 19th century. And it makes sense, right? It's also an oral work. And today we know that the, every single manuscript that we have that we dated, it's basically from that period. And we know that in the context of Islam, also the Islamic periods in Iraq, which was Babylonia, also got into writing. The first paper mills come at that time. So the reality of it is that I was written much later. So it was an oral work. So you could take Halevi's basic premise that Abai Varava collected the traditions and traditions will learn collectively. And the truth is, there is already many proofs for that. Number one, the way the recording of transmissions shows that. Not only that, the Geonim themselves say that until Abai Varava, the process of Allah was determined by earlier generations. When a student argued with his master, the Allah was in The student can never prevail over his rabbi, over his master. So he always went backwards. But amazingly enough, the death of Abai Varava switches. Now, if a student argues with his rabbi, Halachaki Batrai follows the later generations. And what happened? So the Marik explained that, the same idea, because until by Varova, you learn from your specific rabbi. So therefore, 
you could never be bigger who you learn from. But now you're learning from the collective, right? You're learning from the collective tradition. The collective kept growing. So the collective later generations had a bigger rabbi. So therefore, the Allah has to follow Now, Ravashi clearly, and I think it's very demonstrated in the show in my book, the Ravashi had this role. I'm not sure if he did editing. I don't think he did editing, but he did create a second version, a cleaner version in some local editing of a bias idea. And he collected something called the prototype. That is the prototype, which is very distinct. It's Amoraic, meaning attributed. It's mostly in Hebrew. And it's like Halivni says, and Halivni is right. The rulings with Amoraim are very different. They are apodictic. Apodictic is something used in New Testament history. It's the idea of very clear, defined, short statements. And you see that. And you could see very clear. And that was maintained and memorized at the beginning of the of this sixth century by something called the Tanaimid Academies. But I think the interpretation always took place. And the interpretation are called the Savoraim. And my view is that then you could apply Halim, the Savoraim are not a category of people like a chronology. Clearly, they are the ones with the most of the work is between the end of the Talmud in the fifth century, in the sixth century, and the Gionim, because they are the only ones in place. That's why it's called the Savoraic Age. But I proved that the Savoraim existed throughout, even much later. And the Savoraim would did interpret. There was always a commentary, like our scroll, right? The interprets the Gemara. There was oral interpretation. The difference is the oral interpretation, number one, was anonymous because it was a growing process, like a snowball. It was a hierarchical structure, right? That goes and it becomes more and more complex as it evolves over time. And there are today oral traditions in Indonesia who do that. There is a fixed text and a text of interpretation that evolves over time. And that's the Savoraic work. And that's the Stama the Gemara. Well, Halivni always goes this, this focus on the anonymous part of the Talmud, which is interpretations of the Amoraim. And he says, because they reconstructed the Amoraim, I say it's not reconstructed. The Amoraim were there. They reinterpret the Amoraim. They try to reconcile. So they, they take the work of Ravash, which are called the Proto-Talmud, and they write a oral interpretation. So the Talmud was written, was put it together. But you could see, today you could discern the Amoraic work, which is the Halevi's contribution. It's very defined. You could see that it's in Hebrew, it's apodictic, it's attributed. And then you have the interpretations. So the interpretation are not a reconstruction, they are reinterpretation. And that kept evolving over time until the Talmud was written. Because once you write, now you know that basically it can continue because if you continue evolving, people will say, one second, this doesn't fit with what was before. In a world of oral, you could continue developing interpretation and people don't realize that you're changing because there are no tape recorders. But once you have written, you have this evidence. And you see that. You see that even written works by the earlier commentators before Rashi, which was a Nisim Gaon school and... Um, and uh, Rabinu Hananel and Rabinu Gershom school continue the same way. They also continue writing interpretations, almost like a paraphrase of the Talmud, even when it was already written after the 10th, 11th, 12th century. So that's my view. My view is that the Talmud today is based of two works. Basically, it's a combination. The Moraic work, which is in Hebrew, apodictic, it is, follows Halevi, and the Stamadigmara, the anonymous, which is Halevi's contribution, 
is not a reconstruction work, but a work of reinterpretation. In, in some ways, this is similar to the work of Shama Friedman, who was a contemporary, who is alive, and is, he was at the same time learning from Shaul Lieberman, and also focused on the anonymous part of the Talmud, but he also thinks that this is an interpretation, not a reconstruction. And that's what I think, and it works extremely well. And that's why you see that the Rishonim had a issue of what's the Allahic authority of that anonymous interpretation. So the Reef in Hulin right, actually writes that that is more authoritative than the Moraim. You know why? Because it's later. And the Allah followed the little authorities, but right. So you see clearly not like Halevi, Halevi, because the Talmud continued to evolve. The Rambam, I have my proofs, and I, that the, my mother this holds that the acceptance, the communal acceptance, they gave authority to the Talmud as only the Amoraic statements and rulings, not on interpretations. That's why the Rambam, my mind, feels liberty to interpret the Amoraim different than the Talmud in its anonymous voice interprets, because it says it was never accepted. Where is the future research in this area headed towards? What, 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 what do you see happening as research develops in this? What else can be discovered? See, there's a lot of stuff because like Jay Harris introduction my book from Harvard says, we never will never know hundred percent how the Talmud was filled unless somebody was there and can tell us this as the conjecture. My approach is one, but many others agree disagree. I mean you look at Albert Brody, he sees the Talmud totally different. He sees how the Talmud formation process took place very differently. And clearly, I think the process, I am very comfortable with what I say and I have a lot of proof, but you know what's amazing? You could use this as forms of interpretation. My goal is to integrate this with the traditional learning because I think they can add, and we actually have classes, shearing, and to blend to the academic approach together with the traditional. Same way you took Halivni and Halevi, which Halivni, and you blend it together. I think this is an approach of study. So there is a lot of work to be done in applying this into interpretation, giving a new light and new approach to the Talmud. But methods of different formations continue being. You have a guy like Brody, Robert Brody from Virginia University, has a totally different view. And he actually wrote a commentary. It just came out three volumes of a second to both, applying his theories. So the amazing part of it, the formation of the Talmud is something that you never be sure. You keep growing. I always say it is an evolving process because you find more and more proof and more and more clarity onto it. Each one is on view. And Used it as interpretation and giving you shedding new light of the Talmud. This, together with the analytical method, gives you a clarity of the Talmud that's fascinating. Makes the Talmud very alive and a way helps you to memorize, to understand its interpretation. And the very methods of formations, which continue evolving, what they need to do now is apply this to interpretation of the Talmud and approaches learning. And the one who is the most successful, as we know, evolution tells you the survival of the fittest. Those, his, those historical methods, methods of formation, who fit more with the text, with the integrity of the text, who allow you the text to be more understood, more alive, are the methods which are continuing. And there's competition. And I personally welcome competition. Um, my, my sons um, started start learning Talmud and Gemara in fifth grade. And as the years progress, they're always finishing the sechtot, sections of the Talmud, they're making siyumim, and they're covering a lot, a lot of ground. 
how do the yeshiva world, you know, someone who's been learning in Brisk in Jerusalem for many years and has a tremendous knowledge of the Talmud and can and the reasoning behind the Talmud. Why would why would it be important for them to study this topic? And what's the reluctance to get a better understanding of the formation of the Talmud for the yeshiva world? Now, first of all, I don't think it's only important. I think it's vital. I think that today there is a lot of desire, and I published my book, My Goal is to Integrate. You will see that because a lot of the work, the analytical work in Brisk, is analytical. It's not literary. And many times it's glossed over. And that was my issue. Because if you don't know the structure of the Talmud, the formation, the oddities, you just gloss over. You focus on the ideas, and you discuss the ideas. And many questions, that are not real questions. So actually, I think that there is a resurgence and an interest in learning the topic. I see for myself, I give a Chabura and I give Shuri my teaching, why you in Shiva University, and even the most yeshivas, yeshivas are very interested in this, because they realize that that is something that has not been focused. Anybody who wants to yeshiva knows that the literary aspect is completely forgotten. We focus on the ideas, on the what's called the analytical process. But if you go into the literary process, into the structure, is something that can add a very important dimension. I think it's not only important, it's vital. Now, clearly, there is reluctance. And the reason is because a lot of the people have their own agendas. A lot of the people don't talk the same language. There is a break. The academic world focuses very much on that. There is always the field agenda, and they can't relate because they never went to Ishibo. They never went to Brisk. They never learned it. So they, they, it's like basically that in two different wavelengths. That's number one. Number two, clearly there is a reluctance to see people that perhaps have their own agenda. And they don't see the value because they say, okay, these guys, they know the structure, but they don't know what we know. That's why it's important to have people who have been trained and learned and regularly Shibot are respected, Ruth Farim, like Halevi did that, right? Halevi wrote a book, a Sefer Chazaka, Matim Lamadim, very was respected by Chaim Brisker, and he went into that. His goal was also to merge the two. You need people who are very versed in the Shivish, in the Shiva world learning, which is Brisk and the Liquid world, taking that, which is very well, and saying, okay, let me show you something else and show you how it reconciles, how it fits, how it helps. So you need the bridge over. And I see myself as my goal and my mission here in this planet to continue that work. What Halevi wrote, that he thinks that this is in his letters that I write in my book, that we need to merge the two. I think the time has come. And I see there is more and more interest. And not only these things don't contradict each other, not only they don't challenge or undermine tradition, just the opposite. They give you an amazing dimension, depth, and show you how fantastic the Talmud is, because the Talmud is a very unique work, right? It's the only collective work for, imagine, from the years, from the beginning of the third century to the ninth century, we don't have any individual works. The people of the book, the Halal Kitab that were called by Muhammad, right? The people of the book didn't write anything. The first book that comes up individual work is in the ninth century, the end of the eighth century, beginning of the ninth century, with the Shilatot. Why? Because all the work was being formed and evolved as part of this collective conversation. The Talmud is the ultimate collective conversation. Also, the Talmud Babylonia comes to, to rectify the Tower of Babel. 
The Torah Bible is because people didn't speak the language. Nobody listened to each other because they didn't speak the same language. The Talmud tells you that even though you don't speak the same language, even though you don't agree, but everybody listens to each other. It's a collective work and a collective conversation. And that is the greatness of the Talmud. And you can only appreciate if you learn the literary format combined with the Atlantic. And I think that there is a humongous, humongous importance. I think it's vital, but like everything else, Little by little is being done. It's being done via podcast, by Bonshurim, by, by books. I'm translating my book now into Hebrew, hopefully for people to understand and to appreciate and to be part of the conversation. Again, uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. I'm sure it has opened up a lot of issues for our listeners and viewers and urge all our listeners and viewers to, to um, take a look at um, Dr. Bergman's book and online lectures and videos and they're all available at your website i believe it's yes and my book is available in english for the time being and it's coming to be in hebrew and it's available for free right in electronic format right is open access is part of the open access right. and you could just go and get the book and learn it and i want people to learn and you don't have to agree just be exposed to it and you'll see that it's fascinating and i think my experience has been that anybody has been exposed to it has gained a lot and it becomes a second nature and you realize that you could appreciate remember and understand it much better the talmud than it was possible before again uh, dr bergman thank you so much uh, for today appreciate it very much thank you very much my pleasure Harry. thank you very much bye-bye